I've wanted to quit about a hundred gazillion times, a lot, like a lot, a lot, but I want to do what I love. So that is the key, right? To do what we love. And this is what I love to do. It comes with difficulties and it comes with rewards. So I have to be able to handle both and know both. Welcome to Choosing to Farm, a podcast for first and returning generation livestock farmers and ranchers to share their stories, find connection, and provide insight into the life of farmers who didn't take the traditional path. I'm your host, Jen Colby. This is Jen. Thanks for joining us. I hope you're having a great day. First of all, I wanted to note that I've gotten some really amazing feedback from listeners about my recent bonus episode describing my journey over the last few years and my mission, my life's purpose to help people in agriculture heal our relationship with success one person at a time. Part of the challenge is that many of the people I talk to know this this is a problem across the industry and want to take action, but they don't know where to start. And as I've learned firsthand, it starts with us, which is why I'm starting the Whole Human Club. Every month, we're going to be picking a topic to learn about and work on in a safe, shared community. There will be access to... Um, regenerating images in memory or RIM sessions at reduced prices. The details are still in development, but I am really excited. Uh, I hope that you'll join us. And uh, more information is going to be coming soon through the Choosing to Farm mailing list. So sign up now if you're not already on that list to get updates as soon as we do have things finalized. I'm excited. Okay. On today's episode, I am joined by Nicole Ferrier, who moved to Vermont in order to create a more relaxed pace of life. But that's not quite what happened. Let's jump in. My name's Nicole Ferrier, and I am a co-owner of Sugar Feather Farm. We are in Vermont, located like in the central area in Berlin, kind of between Northfield and Montpelier. And... Our farms evolved many times, I feel like, like every year, <laughs> but we started actual farming in 2019, So we're and we did not come from a farming background, and we have five children, by the way. So we raise and we do a lot. So we raise and breed heritage and unique breeds of fowl. So we're like a big, huge bird farm, you know? So we do heritage breeds, we do unique breeds, and we do rare breeds. What I mean by heritage is, you know, the heritage breeds from the past, they might be on the conservation list, and we're trying to preserve those breeds. And then unique breeds could be something that I think is super cool. And then rare breeds would be things that there's just not a lot of, and I'm really fascinated with their genetics or their backgrounds. And, you know, that's something I want to pursue. 
but we're really into preservation a lot and bringing back the breeds that we really need these breeds from the past and their genetics is what we need for the future. And then every everything I have here, it has to have a purpose. They can't just be here for no reason. They can be beautiful, but they also need have to have a purpose since I'm a farmer, whether they are grazers, whether they are for meat, whether they are for eggs, you know, cleanup crew, everyone has to have a purpose. We do chickens, we do ducks, we do turkeys, we do geese, emus, I have some emus, and we do many types of quail. So I do button quail, I do caternics, I do mountain quail, and mirren's quail. <laughs> I know, it's a lot. Um, wow. Yeah, and they're like so fascinating to me. So I geek out on the stuff like this. And then, of course, chickens is the big, the biggest thing. And then with what we do, so we ship. So we're online. We're very e-commerce. So I've had a full-fledged website since 2019. It was very difficult to do. It's really hard to sell animals in a way, right? It's a living creature. We offer hatching eggs to people that they could hatch, so fertile eggs. We offer babies, depending on you know, the breeds and the types, mostly babies for everything, and feathered out. So some birds we do, for example, like the chickens, we do feathered out, and people can get those for, for home, for the farm, for homesteads, for production, all kinds of categories, sometimes adults. It just depends. And then we have supplements. We have other products. We have bees. And then we have our own feed line. So I have custom feeds for all the birds because I have specialty birds. So they have to have the best feed. And it's all non-GMO. I even have emu feed, like a retite feed. So we have all that. And we actually sell that too. It's not something we want to do full time, but we have it on the side if people need it. And we ship it too. We ship all over the U.S., all of these things. And we also offer on-farm pickup. People can come to the farm. They're not allowed in the farm because I have something called biosecurity, which I could talk about too, but but they can observe and see things from outside the fence and everyone has to come and have an appointment. So that's kind of what we do. And then I'm trying, we were, we're trying to get a farm store lined up so I can have actual eggs for eating too, because I usually have a lot of eggs for eating and other things we're working on, you know, to for expanding so like er herbs and stuff like that for growing because i do grow things too so it's quite a lot that's a lot that is a lot that's like an understatement of (laughs) it's quite a lot (laughs) yes yes so if we go back before 2019 how did you get here why fowl and yeah, those are just a couple of the questions. <laughs> There's no farming in anything that we, you know, background sort of with Rob. He has some farming background, uh, but nothing like this. We're from California. We have family over here. So I know it, it was completely night and day coming from there to here. When we got here, I had the bucket list of things I wanted to do and what we wanted to accomplish. I was supposed to not do so many things, ease the stress and sort of retire, if that makes sense from what I was doing before and be a little bit more like still. But when you come from 
a super busy environment and you've done that your whole life, plus have all the children I've had and just the way California is, is very busy to come somewhere to, and not be busy, it, I guess it was, I didn't know how to do it. So I started a, a bunch of things that I wanted to do on my bucket list. Chickens was one thing I wanted to do on our, and have a homestead and do our own thing, right? I wanted to be self-sufficient and we had land. We didn't have land before we lived by the beach, you know, uh, with point. It is very different than central Vermont. <laughs> It, it is, it is. And we lived by the beach and had a pool and it was warm all the time. But we love weather. We went camping a lot, very into nature and into animals. We always had a lot of animals. I also have kids with special needs. So I feel like, and volunteering. So I think, I feel like all of that came into play and comes into play on the way I'm going or the way we've been going and how we got to it. So I just started that and then I got really fascinated with it. It was probably like my, I worked for a civil engineer for many years. So I just was fascinated with history. I love antiques. I like things that tell a story. And I love the background of that story and where it comes from. And I love nature. I love animals. I want all of us to be together with it, if that makes sense. I don't know. I like, I have a lot of predators, for, for example, right? But it's their land. I'm on their land. Somehow we need to work together. So I don't want to take away from them or we have to learn to share it, right? Anyway, so I just got really in, in fascinated with it. And then it was a homestead thing with a lot of things. It was at the point of, do we make it a business or do we make it a homestead? And then some things happened, unexpected things. I'd take care of my dad. He moved in with us. There's just life things that get in the way or that happen. Unpredictable things that I never, a lot of unpredictable things happen that it, that we didn't expect and jobs and different jobs and stuff. So I had to make the decision of, of doing this as, as our sole income, really, and how to do that, which is difficult to income. To have one income, farm income is like very difficult. So I'm trying to make that work. Hopefully yeah. I am. <laughs> oh, absolutely. So when did that sort of shift where you felt like farm income needed to be the sole income to support everything? I think it was like 2020, 21, 2020, probably even maybe 2020. I feel like I'm not a normal person in a way. Uh, I'm When I decide to do something, I put everything into it and I won't give up and I won't quit. And I mean, I put a lot of time and effort and money into it. But sometimes that, you know, when I'm involved in something, I just want to see it through. And I knew, I knew this is what we wanted, you know. Now, the kids, it's hard. They didn't grow up around this, so they're not used to it. So for them, it's a little bit, it, it's a difficult transition. Vermont is not a difficult transition. It's doing the farming, which is a difficult transit because it's work. <laughs> I was going to say, so how, yeah, how do your kids feel about being farmers suddenly and being asked to do things? They don't like it at all. Uh, it's been an evolution of ups and downs. I think later they'll appreciate it. But like once, like my one of my kids won't work for me at all, but he'll work at another job. But I, and it's kind of funny because I had a kid work for me and he wouldn't work for his parents at their job. 
So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> somehow it's just so much easier. It's like, somehow it's just easier sometimes, isn't it? If they learn their skills from another adult who tells them things that you would totally tell them. Exactly. <laughs> that actually happened with our son as well. He did not enjoy farming at all. He did not want to be outside at all. He actually is not an outside person at all. And he ended up going to work as a teenager for uh, a gentleman in our community who taught him all kinds of things. And he worked outside the entire time. That is so funny. Yeah. And it, yeah. And though he has no interest in farming, he's actually very willing to help me when I need him. Now he's in his mid twenties. Now he became an adult and he could choose. Now he chooses to help me sometimes. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I have three teenagers was sort of, I'm at home now. So like a 12 year old and the other two, she's the youngest, but they help too when, but they don't want to. And definitely two of them do not like to be outside. They don't even like dirt touch. They don't like dirt. So that is also very difficult. I'm just thinking back and maybe I'm just projecting. So let me know if this is projection that fits or it's just mine, <laughs> which is fine too. Uh, back when I wanted to start a little homestead and have a few animals and grow a vegetable garden and have a baby and all of those things. I just had this, this sort of romantic view that we would do everything together. The family would, we would all work together and the baby would be happy all the time. My son was about six months old. He had no interest in being outside to the point that he like yelled and screamed and didn't take naps anymore. <laughs> outside, he's fine inside. And I just, so that like romantic view just kind of went out the door for me. And I see folks on Instagram for whom their romantic vision seems to be really true. I'm kind of wondering where were you at and where are you at in terms of what you thought you'd have and what you have family-wise? When I moved, you know, my bucket list yeah. is I, is an ideal list in a way. It has things that were in my head. Farming, I had this ideal picture for sure. So this cohesiveness, all happy and all that. I agree. You have an idealistic view. And I think social media definitely makes it seem that way too, because everything's perfect. You just have to know that maybe your that idealistic view isn't the reality of the situation. I've wanted to quit about a hundred gazillion times a lot, like a lot, a lot, but what do I want to do what I love? Okay. So that is the key, right? To do what we love. And this is what I love to do. It comes with difficulties and it comes with rewards. So I have to be able to handle both and know both, right? I'm okay with it. You have to be okay with that, I guess, in your mind and know those things. And there's a lot of things that are unexpected or don't go your way or in the plan. Farming, I feel like, is a lot of changing, right? And evolving. So every day I could have a plan, but that doesn't mean it's going to go that way. Things, <laughs> something that happens always, especially animals. I mean, there's a bit of unpredictability. What keeps you going when you want to, when you want to quit? Knowing I'm making a difference, knowing I'm loving what I do, I'm providing for my family. They have a future, something they can take over or look forward to doing 
remarkable things. I get to be outside all day. I love being outside all day, honestly, helping and teaching and learning. I love teaching, love learning, love it. Using my best qualities, those are what keep me going. And I love animals, of course, obviously. Here I am, right? So, yeah, those are what keep me going. Yeah. Yeah. If you guys got started in 2019, what did COVID do for you or to you in terms of getting this business off the ground? Is that a good thing in some so, weird way yeah. or not? Well, COVID, I mean, I already had, what was good is I already was online and had a website and e-commerce. Like I was already way in leaps and bounds ahead of a lot of people on the farming side, Not that nothing critical to anyone else. I was just there already, which was really good for me. So I don't, it didn't honestly really affect me on the farming side, really very much. It did on the personal end of jobs, of course because we had a job loss during that time. So yeah. that affected, and then having the kids home was really hard and managing their education, but it wasn't really COVID, but other, so I think COVID we did fine. I'm curious about whether uh, people started ordering more chicks the year after COVID went, or maybe it was even during COVID year when there were tons of people starting backyard flocks and there were lots of folks who suddenly wanted their own eggs because there have been egg shortages. Do you see people increasing demand because they want more self-sufficiency that way? Absolutely. Yes. I think it's here to stay though. I do. There was a lot of people that didn't, a lot of new people. Yes. And then some, a lot of them got out of it, you know, yes. just because they didn't realize it, there is work in their animals and there you have to take care of them. You have to actually take care of them. <laughs> but I do agree. Yes, it was a spike. I believe when the economy is not as good that things like this do better, but I'm not entirely sure, but I believe so. So I would definitely say that it, I don't see it going away. I really want to teach people to be more self-sufficient, definitely. And with the breeds I have, you can be, because I do mentoring too. It doesn't matter. You, I mentor farms. I'm, you know, all the way down to backyard. Anybody really can have anything I have. Have you had mentors as well as you've been getting started and going? And Yes. So I think mentorship is the key to everything. <laughs> <laughs> I, that's, I'm huge about it. So I do. I and I also uh, belong to organizations or try to be involved in things where there are people who know things because we need to get the knowledge of those breeds of what they do in order to for us to do our job. There's a lot of also things that that we need to know for where we live and the climate and everyone's climate's different and everyone's where they live in the U.S. is different. Mentoring just on all a lot of different ends and having friendships too helps. Absolutely. I, I think that when we're farming communities in general have a, they can have an interconnectedness when they're in person, but when you do something that's different than many of the people around you, then they can also feel really isolating. Yeah. Having a network of people is just a huge thing. And the mentors are such a cornerstone to that. 
I definitely felt isolated. The farms I've reached out to don't want to help me at all. I don't know why, but I definitely felt in the area some resistance. The mentors I have aren't in the area. They're in other states, and I do see them sometimes, but it's more of a mentorship either through Zoom-ish, like something like this, or phone calls and checking in versus in-person mentorships. Yeah. I've, it's interesting. Most of the mentors that I have, have had have been email relationships. Here's, this, here's I meet them once or twice and then they develop, I, I develop some level of trust in them because their guidance is good. And then it's just emailing after that. It's so interesting. It's a rare thing to actually get to see them. Yeah. I know. I agree. A few local old, you know, older farmers who are more retired and have slowed down some things. They're a little better at mentoring. <laughs> they seem to have the time and capacity to do that. Right. At yes. Least that's my experience. Yeah. Great. So what are some of the ways that you market? Because this is sort of a, an unusual thing. I mean, I can think of a few much larger hatcheries and I, we haven't talked about your size and scale, so I have no idea, um, how often you're shipping or how many birds you're shipping right now, or if you want to share that. Um, But you're breaking into a market with some pretty established players. Like, how is that? How's that working for you? So there's a ton of hatcheries, right? I don't consider myself a hatchery, even though I have a hatchery building in a way, but I don't want to ever be big like that. We are different, but being different also is hard because I'm going into territories that I don't know many people that are in that territory. So I'm just trying to figure out how I can do things affordably too, because this is all expensive and and also follow my principles. I have values and principles that are important to my farm. I have my mission or my statement, and then I have like our my core, which you probably do too. It's very important that I'm hands-on with all the birds. We do everything here from scratch. A lot of places don't, actually. I do my own breeding. I raise them from egg up. We do everything here. That's very difficult to do, actually. A lot of different moving parts and pieces and space and lots of biosecurity, right? Things like that. We're very hands-on, and I work on friendliness of the birds and while keeping and maintaining their breeds or genetics. I always like to compare it to like dogs or something because that's Mm -hmm. an easy comparison. There's purebreds of different kinds of dogs and there's nuts, right? There's, and, and sometimes there's two breeds and then they take like a labradoodle and then they take two and create something. So each breed has its attributes and who it is, right? That I like, I want to make sure I keep that focused for each one, but also consider their temperaments and viability. So all that has to come into play. And then if I have two breeds, I have a creation or a hybrid, there's things that go along with that. But pretty much all our birds or fowl are super friendly. So people really like that. They have pretty good personalities. I can't knock on wood say everybody's going to be perfect. And there's males and there's things that go along with the male and who they are, they have hormones. There's things that go into play with that. For example, I have 50 geese. People have a, a, are very scared of geese, a lot of people. They've had bad experiences with geese. 
I think personally, it has to do with genetics and how you raise them and their environment. All the food, like food, care, maybe their genetic background and their treat, like in their environment, all of that plays into that animal or the, the geese, for example. So all my geese are nice. They're not aggressive and they're not like nice where they'll sit up on your lap because I- <laughs> There's nice and then there's too nice, right? <laughs> we have a mutual respect. Geese are designed to be guardians and mothers and fathers and also weeders. And so they need to be able to do those things. And if you make them a pet and uh, they're not going to do any of those things, then if they're aggressive, then you can't really have them around. So our, mine are in the middle and we have like this, we just have a mutual respect and I respect their space and they respect mine. And I let them be who they are. I feel like that's a difference too. Or, and then everything, all our feeds are non-GMO. I use fresh, everything's fresh that they eat and it has like the top vitamins in it and minerals. So they get really good nutrition here. I think that makes a huge difference. You can ask me things and I can help you with it. A lot of times when you order from places, there's nobody to talk to or ask questions that has knowledge, right? I have so much knowledge, a plethora of knowledge. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like so. I have a lot of knowledge and people can actually book consultations with me and have one-on-one -on -one time. And they can even come in person and have one-on-one -on -one time and I can help them design their whole setup. I'm kind of like a matchmaker. They tell me their situation or they give me all their, and I'm like, this is what I think you should do. And it's all based on the information they might give me. We do that too. I think that's how we're unique. It, yeah. It's definitely harder, you know, and I don't have sexing birds, you know, they have sexers, right? I don't have anything like that or, and you know, that's a little bit more difficult for me, stuff like that. But that's kind of how we're different, I guess. There's more ways but those are the big ones. Yeah. Yeah. Have you ever heard of the triangle that things can be cheap, fast, or easy? And if you want it fast and easy, it's not cheap. And if you want, yeah, you know, like that triangle. Yeah, yeah. And I'm definitely getting that vibe of it's not going to be, it's not going to be cheap and it may or may not be fast, but you're going to get high quality. I feel like that's what I'm taking away from this conversation is that you're really emphasizing quality, both the quality of your customer service and the quality of the birds that people will get as well. Is it, right. Is that, yeah. 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 I mean, that's definitely what I'm picking up, that, that that's your priority. Yeah, we do our best. We're not perfect. And I mean, and what's hard about, I'm definitely a slower kind of a place and our society is just not equipped for that anymore. We want everything quick. It's Amazon quick two days. So getting that message across is really hard yeah. that this takes time. And it's also, I can't, there's also an unpredictability of it, but so it's a slower paced type of thing. I only do heritage turkeys. I don't do the broad breasts at all. I don't do any factory type birds or, or genetic birds like that, but if you are raising the heritage turkeys for meat, if you are, if you treat them good, they taste better. They, they do. They, it's an actual, it's actual fact. So that, that's just something, you know, to consider as well, you know, more humane treatment. I'm very humane, I, I would say. 
there's no humane certification for what I do. I've actually looked into it, but I would do that. But there's not a lot of people that do what I do, right? So yeah. oh, totally. I, I want to do other animals as well. Uh, but we first have to get our farm. We've been trying to get things built for a couple of years now. And then the flood really just like threw, really threw everything off. From this summer or the more recent this flood? The summer, the summer one? Uh, Did yeah, you guys we, get a lot of, of damage we, from that? We, I Yes. I had $232,000 of damage. I know because <gasps> I had to fill out a bunch of paperwork. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, my gosh. I know. So was that building uh, buildings and road and other things or it's um, animal loss? It's animal loss, hill, like a lot of erosion, septic, yes, and some building damage. I lost some machinery incubations. I lost I, I had four machines. I got I lost four machines. And that's just the total fencing, like everything that goes to lots and lots of mud. Yeah. Yep. Wow. What's the likelihood of getting some replacement or have you already, or has there been any settlement on that or assistance for that damage? This is a whole conversation, right? Yeah. Well, this is the reality. I know that we, I know that we like to talk about the animal side and so many of us who are livestock farmers were in it because of the animals. Uh, that's the animals are how we get sucked into this, but then we have to deal with regulation and insurance and land management and catastrophic mudslides and floods and fires and that's just a piece of farming that we just don't always talk about and yeah so it's good for people to hear that crazy stuff happens and it's not just whether or not the animals breed back it's also whether or not your neighbor complains and then your town throws up your road or whatever yeah yes yeah and absolutely and i can't help weather and i feel i can't even predict I don't even know what to expect with weather. Like our winter's been the strangest. I have turkeys laying eggs right now. That is really not good. They don't lay eggs right now. They should be laying in April, right? Or pulse. I think I get pulse in April. So the eggs that I'm getting are not fertile, but only lay a certain number of eggs a year, right? So what's going to happen in, for my season? Am I going to lose out on having turkey pulse? But weather here... <sighs> What's hard is where we live too. And maybe that's why a lot of people don't do what I do here because it's hard to do what I do here because of all our different types of scenarios and weather. I feel like we have everything. Um, And there's a lot of unpredictability here with weather. There is predictability of, okay, it's winter and maybe summer, you know, sort of, but even in that day, it could change like three times. So it's, it's, you have to really be prepared but you can't be prepared, obviously, for a flood. Something that was pretty awful, yeah. I would say. That was probably one of the worst times we've had since we've been here, for sure. How is recovery from that going and replacement, if any? It is so slow, and there's just not enough help. Uh, and there, we really need help. I did a GoFundMe, but the problem is when you're in a crisis, you're not thinking of telling people and taking videos and doing any of that. I didn't do things that I could have done to raise money for myself because I was in the moment of the crisis of 
trying to save my animals. That's what's hard when you're in a crisis and then you're like, oh no, I missed my time. You know, like I said, a GoFundMe, but I did it like a week later. That wasn't really the time. I missed it. I missed that opportunity. So I was really bummed about that. I still have it there, but the funding to help us in our state, I wish there was more for definitely even not just for farms, but everybody needs help here. And there's not enough business, especially businesses and all the businesses. I live right by Montpelier. My road was locked down for four days. Like I couldn't even get out. It wasn't like I flooded, like I can't describe it, but all the water from where my house is all goes down to my farm, if that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, my basement got semi-flooded and my septic and all that down there. But up top, my house is fine. But like I did FEMA, I did all that. I did the FEMA thing, but they didn't do anything, honestly. And there was just so much and it's so overwhelming that I missed out on a lot of stuff, I'm pretty sure. But anything you do to try to get funding takes a long time and it's a lot of paperwork. So it's the same as doing a grant. Uh, I need to do about 20 grants right now, right? So I had to compile a lot of stuff to get help, but I have had some help. Yes. Enough? No, but it's, it's definitely, it's definitely been very helpful, but I still, there's a lot of stuff I still need that I, I can't get, or you need a lot of money up front to I am loving this conversation, but I wanted to take a quick break to thank our underwriter for this episode, the New England Grazing Network. The New England Grazing Network is funded by the Cedar Tree Foundation with the goal of gathering and growing more regenerative grazing farms across the six New England states to address the challenges and adapt to climate change. The New England Grazing Network partners offer education, technical assistance, events, regional coordination, and camaraderie for grazers to help you graze better. Visit NewEnglandGrazingNetwork.com to learn more about our work and meet the partners waiting to help you. Whole Human Healing and Transformation provides in-person and virtual transformational healing services to willing and committed clients from all backgrounds, orientations, and demographic groups. Our primary purpose is to help our clients heal their traumas through modalities such as regenerating images and memory, or RIM, breathwork, and meditation, so that we can all live happier and healthier lives. For more information on Whole Human, go to morewholehumans.com or look for us on Facebook and Instagram. We are trying to relocate our farm. That's our our vision and our goals. And this basically solidified that we need to move it because they can't be where they're at. It's so saturated and so muddy and so bad that we have to get them out so the land can get fixed. The land needs to be fixed. Nothing goes down anymore. I don't know if that makes any sense, but yeah, it's just not infiltrating anymore. Just it's it's so saturated. Yeah, yeah. We had that in our super grassy. We had that in our pastures this year, where it was just it wasn't going to take anymore. Like it just wasn't. No, and yeah, yeah. So anything I put down just gets muddy, and I can't put down rocks. It hurts their feet. There's things I just can't do because it causes problems and the only solution is to move them but in order to move everyone it's i mean it's a huge task i have to have a building to move them into it's quite an ordeal to move everybody and i have to have separation so it's not everyone has to be separated because i do different types of breeds right so they all have to be separated and I have to have a road, which we have to have electric. Specifically so. for, for incubators and 
and for my farm i need electricity for sure absolutely i even have like a pet hospital or for the machinery i have to have heat i have to be able to have places where if i need to work on a bird not a vet but i i actually do necropsies on my animals and i do all kinds of things because I need to know a nice, a cl- very clean area. I have a greenhouse also, but it's not up, but that will be back there. I'm very excited about my greenhouse. Um, <laughs> that was supposed to have already been built, but didn't happen. But Is that greenhouse going to be more for you to have a place to get away and do things that feel different than running the business? Or is that going to be incorporated in the business as well? Oh, it's definitely going to be incorporated in the business. Gotcha. I have a plan. It's going to be amazing. I'll reveal it later. <laughs> I felt <laughs> really cool. I, I don't think anybody, I don't know anyone who's done it or is doing it, but I'm very, I'm pretty excited about it. I also lost all my beehives too. So that's, you know, I have to get those established and trying to get anything with the USDA is so, I just don't have time. I don't, it's a lot of work and they only pay me, I think, a dollar a bird. I understand, you know, they're basing it off of like regular type of the meat bird or something. I get it, uh, but it's not practical for me. So. so how many birds did you lose the floods? I have to look at my numbers. I have a calculation, but I think like 400-ish. Oh gosh. So, so some of it was in my inside my baby area the babies because i had no power i had no power for three days too and then my stuff got flooded like my incubation equipment and stuff like that so they those were those all those babies that were hatching all died then i lost some birds right then but also after just because of the the mud and the conditions wow I did want to touch on your biosecurity because it is pretty unusual to have, did I count five different broad categories of fowl, chickens, turkeys, ducks, geese, emus, guineas. There we go. Guinea fowl is six, six different types of fowl. It is six. Yes. Okay. So some of those have very clear biosecurity issues with one another. How do you manage that? That is pretty significant. Yes. Right now, it's not ideal at all, like how I want it to be. So it will be, though, when we move our operations. Everyone, I keep the game birds, which are guineas, turkeys, quail are as well, but that's a different, that's a different because they're not roaming game birds. They are together and they kind of stay together, as in their house together. The turkeys have a free range environment. They get to go to during the day and the guineas kind of do, the guineas kind of do whatever, but they're, I mean, I do work on training them when they're babies. That's the key. They do go around, but they're very into their routine. They want to do what they want want to do. They stay where they stay. They're fine. The waterfowl is, has to really be with the waterfowl, definitely. And they kind of roam in their own area. What I'm, Wanting what I want to is to have a rotational, I'll be doing like a rotational grazing sort of structure for myself, having an area and then those guys get to go out and go to their area and everyone will have their area in a way. The chickens are in their own, because I I have to keep all the chickens separate, each 
chicken is in its own area and they don't come out, but they have their own outdoor space and indoor space, each one, which is a lot. So they get to do, yes, it's in a confined area, but it's a, for now, right? This is how I am now, but they can't mix with each other, but they're outside whenever they want. They go in whenever they want, except for at night, we put everybody away. And the square foot per bird is way beyond normal, of course, because we want to give them humane conditions. They get plenty of everything they need. And so the biosecurity is more of they're in their own areas. The biosecurity with them is different versus the others. Everyone goes to our main hatchery building. In there, I have a, a clean room. Everything that is worn here stays here. And the boots, there is a requirement that they have to stay here. We have indoor shoes, we have outdoor shoes. I have all kinds of infecting types of systems in place. And then even when I go from, you know, one room to another inside with the babies, say, for example, there's biosecurity with that too. So for example, I vaccinate my chickens for our Merrick's disease, but I don't do anything else, any other vaccines or anything. There's an area I have them before vaccine, vaccinated and then after. So that has to be like kind of strict. Where I hatch them is a whole different area. It has to be temperature controlled and clean and in a different way. Each area has its biosecurity and requirements of being clean or wearing gloves or mask or whatever. And then the quail, you're talking about game birds, they're in their own area, honest. They're all in their own area. It's separate because they can, we, other things can give quail diseases for sure. So oh, I didn't realize that. I've never, I've never really worked with quail at all. Emus are right now in another completely different areas until they get to the back where they'll get a lot more roaming space because they need about eight foot high fences. So I have to have the proper stuff for them, but they are definitely kept away from everyone else and nobody wants to be with them. I also have a livestock guardian dog. I did not talk about him. Oh yeah. Yes. He's a Maremma, yep. two and a half years old. His name's Whiskey. He's amazing. Honestly, amazing. Yeah. He has his moments too wandering it's definitely difficult to train and it's very hard for a livestock dog to work with birds i think because birds are flighty and you can't bond with them i believe you, it's very hard to bond with them versus a, a ruminant animal or something so it, i think it takes a lot more time and the right type of personality so of that animal too i yeah. would think but he's not to chase them, certainly. <laughs> yes, or eat them. Or uh, eat them, chase them and eat them because they act like prey. <laughs> they do. I mean, they are prey. They are, but they are prey. That's right. Going back to what the true meaning is of that animal, like that animal is prey. It is livestock as well. Yes, people want them as pets. But yeah. it is still livestock. It is still has its qualities. And that's, we always have to remember that, that yeah. feeling. No, I totally agree. I totally agree. And I, so when you go between one, one biosecurity area and another, are you doing like full outerwear changes? I mean, are there fans that direct air in different places where you're trying to keep any cross-contamination from happening? We do our best. I mean, yeah, I can't help with 
things in the air, definitely. And if they're outside, like avian influenza, it could be in the water. It's in wild birds. Uh, anything wild bird flies over, I could be doomed. <laughs> right. But we live where there are wild birds, wild we animals. Yeah. It's a risk. Yeah, no, we totally do. But I always think of a big, huge factory farm, right? So they have a super controlled environment. They can control things because they know what to expect because it's inside. They already know. They have a plan. Right. I have semi-controlled, but not really because I let, I have indoor and outdoor. That is really hard to do. Then you have also the pasture if you're outside. Right. That's also, to me, maybe more controlled. So I think feel like that's a controlled environment, the pasture, and then inside's controlled. And I'm in this middle part that has both, which I think is very hard to be in because I don't know what to expect because there's a lot of, there's just too many variables. Coming to a middle ground with that is what I'm constantly working on. I can only imagine. I mean, it is really complex and to do it in a, in an on the ground instead of a hermetically sealed sort of scenario is like, what is that practical? Because they also spend a huge amount of money doing that and designing new systems, new facilities to do things like that. And that's not always something that we have the budget to do as a small business. Correct. It's just the reality of it. Like, yeah. So I meant to ask you also, so I feel like I've gotten like a, a decent overview of the other ways that you market the other fowl, you know, a lot of eggs and some folds or some chicks, but emus. Are you getting those processed into oil? Are you selling them as, are you selling the eggs? How are you marketing the emu? Yes. Great questions. There's a, another evolution of the emus too. I was actually going to buy an emu farm here and an emu oil company. Uh, I went and visited a farm and they were selling their, their emu business. Things just didn't work out on that. But that's kind of how it started with the emus. Before I do anything, I have to really understand it, in my opinion, because I, so I can explain this to people. So I was hoping to have eggs, but not yet. I had a lot of problems with getting good breeding stock in the beginning. I had losses too, and learning experiences from all those things, right? When you, whenever you get new stock, there's challenges finding things that aren't genetically inbred too much. I have a meat line. I actually have a, a, a meat line of emus and then I have yeah. a breeding line of emus. So I get the best of both worlds. Absolutely. Uh, right. And my females are bigger than my males because they're the meat line. It's really cool. It's fascinating. Huh. I don't have a plan with them yet because I really want to understand who they are and what they're about, how big they'll get, how do they do in the winter here, even though they do great and they're amazing. It's a 35-year commitment to them. Like people don't know that. What does it mean to have an emu? What do they need for a diet? How hard is it to, you know, raise them? I can't they get that they can get that horse equine cephalitis, I believe. Do they need vaccines? I have to work and understand that first. But eventually, totally would love to share that uh, with others. Right now, it's that's where I'm at with them. Oh my gosh, I totally get the 
needing to really understand something before you can grow it. Uh, when I was with extension, there were so many people that, that would come and they would say, well, I just bought, you know, they didn't say I just bought three sheep or I just bought one cow. They were like, so I just got 50 of this thing. And what do I do with them now? And it was like, we need to try and learn what the animal actually can thrive doing. And we need to understand what we like, whether we even like that animal. And maybe we don't like that animal. We exactly. don't like working with them. Maybe they're just not a good fit. And I feel let's make small mistakes or small learning and not big learning. I've made a lot of mistakes and a lot of huge ones too. I did go crazy in the beginning and I do too much and I didn't have the infrastructure. This is not a farm property. I don't have an at a farmhouse. I really wish I did. Really. I I didn't know I was going to do a farm. So I didn't why would I buy a farm property? There's not a lot of places to choose from when I moved here in the winter. At the time there was really not a lot of choices. Plus finding where to work and good schools and and I wasn't sure if I wanted to be like super remote and remote and coming from southern California busy, a lot of people to be completely remote, I felt was too intensive a change. So that's why where I'm at is cool because we're right by Montpelier, but not really. I wish I was remote actually, but for a business, it's good. But for me, I would rather be where nobody is. (laughs) (laughs) I actually would. So what infrastructure was there when you arrived? Yeah. So I see I oh, no, I didn't even ask you this. Um, now I'm so all curious. Wait, from scratch. Like a, a nice log, like a, a nice house on some acreage. It had a sugar house for fun. It has a lot of woods, a front area. It's a beautiful big house when everything I could ever want, but it has no infrastructure, nothing. We've done everything ourselves. So every tiny thing we've done is from scratch, built ourselves. But the infrastructure we have is very temporary. It's not permanent. That's why we need to relocate so somewhere permanent. And I was always like, I remember I was on the fence for a while. We were like, what should we do? We should we do this, you know. But starting off in the beginning doing research or having a better plan probably would have been a lot better. But that isn't always the case. I don't know. Would it have been better for me? I don't know. Probably. But... Did I learn from it? Absolutely. Has it been hard on my family? Oh my gosh, absolutely. Um, do I ever see my family? No, there's things I need to change. This is the goal of us moving so I could get more efficient. We're very inefficient. Too much labor. With that comes no family time. And that's like a farmer's conundrum. I don't ever stop working. I don't think people understand that. I'm always working. Yes, yeah. I know farming is a lot of work, but I didn't know it would be this much work. And I'm everything. I'm a marketer. I have to be a web designer. I have to be a bookkeeper. I have to be a manager. I have to be a chicken keeper. And I have to do everything It's and be a mom. It's a lot. And it's not for everybody, you know, for sure. I think it's, is it 3% of farms fail the first survive the first year or something. It's a really horrible statistic. It's a horrible statistic and I can't remember, but it's, yeah, just the first year. Yeah. And I think it's it's 5%. I think it's only 5% survive after five, I think. 
that's not a lot. That's really sad, actually. Yeah. Uh, I think it's actually not that I will check for the show notes of this because I am super intrigued about, about my memory, <laughs> but I actually think that the survival rate for farms is not that different than the survival rate for new businesses, period. I think they are, are shockingly close. And it makes me wonder, is that because of the farm as a business or is that because of farming in itself? I don't know. I'm sure business folks have done some research on that somewhere, but that would be awesome. I'm curious to poke around on that my own self. So yes. the labor piece was a thing that I wanted to ask you about too. I, you do a lot. Are you the only person? Do you have other people that are taking pieces and parts of this? Do you take care of every single bird every single day yourself? How does that work out? I was doing a lot of this all by myself. Yes. I doubled in size, I guess, last year. Not, it just happened. It wasn't like I chose that. <laughs> <laughs> because I, what's hard is taking things away. For me, it's harder yes. to get rid of something than to keep it. So I don't know about you. Yes. Uh, <laughs> because there's a lot of work to get rid of something. And uh, it's a lot more work and not more effort. So I just keep things. I keep feel like I just keep keeping things. I do a lot of it myself. Rob does a lot too. He's a mechanic. He's the tractor. He's all that kind of stuff. The blue collar worker, like he gets it done electrical, stuff like that. I am hands-on every day with the birds. I go in everything every day. Yes, believe it or not. I had a very hard time finding people to work. It's been very difficult. One, it's hard to find people for farming, I think, especially in our communities because it's we're all spread out. And then paying somebody a living wage <clears throat> that they is hard as well as for farming. And just keeping people, it's a seasonal job or a seasonal thing, or it, this wouldn't be necessarily someone's full-time job. So they're going to be leaving or coming and going. Um, there's a lot of challenges with that. I could not find anybody for customer service at all last year. Not zero people. So I had to do that too. It was the hardest thing, answering people. I have help now. Yes, I have help. I have people that work for me. How long? I don't know. I do my best to try to keep them so uh, I can get other things done, yeah. keep the business afloat. What areas yeah. have you been able to find help for? Labor, like out, like helping with the birds and stuff. I like to give people with disabilities opportunities a lot. I hire people with some challenges and help them. Um, I'm into in interns. I've had interns here teaching people, but or I've had volunteers too, actually. But that. The labor part seems to be where people most are interested in. Customer service, no. Like, I, don't know. <laughs> I, I couldn't find anybody. I, I don't know. And I wasn't paying bad. I just, you just can't find people at all, like here. I know you. it's a big, huge challenge. I think every business here is having yes. that challenge. I think everyone yeah. across the country, yeah. uh, not the only ones, for sure. I feel like it's harder for us, though. For competition-wise, I don't have all these benefits and versus McDonald's or something, but yeah. it has its ups and downs and a lot of challenges. Something that I think we also don't talk a lot about, and that is that there's a point that we get to where we can't do it all by ourselves, and a lot of farmers don't plan for that. 
as we grow, we don't necessarily plan for that. We just think we're going to be able to keep taking it on and take on the other thing and the other thing and the other thing. And there's just a, we're awesome, but we are also human. <laughs> yes. And there's a physical point where it stops. <laughs> and uh, that's been a really hard reckoning for me. Um, and it, it has made a really huge difference for me. Um, to hire an assistant who does a lot of my social media work and does some podcast editing and some other things. And then I have started to hire some people to do some different things on the farm, physically on the farm, because we can't be everywhere. I'm actually sick of trying to be everywhere because <laughs> I just but, kept getting mad at myself because I wasn't getting there. I know. Yeah. yeah. Well, you have to think it's kind of like, what's the price of human equity or what's the price of, I feel like what, is the price of my health a lot. I know this. I know all the things to do, and, and but the, I don't necessarily do it. But what, you know, if I'm not, if I don't get sleep, for example, there's, I will be horrible the next day. I can't yes. get anything done. You're, nothing will happen. No production, no, pro, I can't be productive. So I have to take care of myself. Self-care yeah. for farmers is definitely something that's not talked about we have to take care of ourselves, uh, but we need those reminders, you know. Yeah, we that, do. You know, and I how I could get things off my plate. And so it doesn't always work. And I might, it might be, but is it worth it for my sanity? Yes. <laughs> <You're right. laughs> if, I, if I can have someone doing the feeding and the watering, is that worth my sanity for the that hour or two? Yes, it is actually. So I can maybe have a cup of coffee. I have to have my downtime a little bit, at least. It's something It's something I'm working on. I'm sure every, I feel like every farmer, we're, we're, how our time management and our allotment of time and our health is very hard and feed it, fitting that in. Yeah. Yeah, I feel that. <laughs> what do you recommend to other people who are getting started? I mean, you've been doing this about five years, coming into your fifth year, right? So you've been doing it for a while and, and yet you're still not so far away from being really fresh. Yes, I know. So how do you advise somebody? What do you recommend that they do if somebody wants to not necessarily get into what you're doing, but get into farming in general? Absolutely right. It doesn't have to mean what I do at all. It's getting into farming. Yeah. There's so many things I can recommend or, or say or do have mentors, go to conferences, take classes, learn books. You know, I, I firmly believe in having books. <laughs> yes, I'm totally an online person, but so much information that is actually va very valid is in books from the past. It, we don't need to recreate the wheel. It's done already. You just have to find it now doing it right or doing doing it better or customizing it for now you know yes or the environment or climate change or whatever yes but all you can go and find those materials study i think you really need to get business oriented with budgets with cash flow and all that you really need to know your numbers really have a plan yeah and start somewhere because if you you want to be able to see if it's even realistic 
your vision or your vision might not be realistic <laughs> and, you, <laughs> and make sense for you. And you need to know your market where you're at yeah. very much. If you, maybe for what I do, there's a market so I could charge, let's say dollars a dozen for eggs up here for eating where you are, maybe you can only charge four and then you have 50 other people doing what you're doing. That might not be something good to, to go into. There's a lot of organizations that can help new farmers. So I think you just have to be able to tap into them and find them, find those resources. There really are some excellent resources. So we need more, absolutely. Yeah. But there's a lot of them that are out there. So that can help. And that will help you with the business planning side, which I think is key. Like it really, it, so I would say business planning, education, mentoring, and don't give up. Like you're going to want to, to be really hard, to be stressful with your partner, with your family, with others. A lot of people don't understand at all. My family, like outside family has no idea. You got to keep in your mind what your goals and why you're doing what you're doing and be happy what you're doing. So those are my takeaways. Well, thank you. Wow. Nicole is majorly driven. And this is coming from me. You guys know me, right? Like I, I can be driven, but she is driven. I can see her vision to protect the different species and share that all across the country. It's just amazing. I really appreciate her sharing a different model of farming and all the complexities that that requires. Just huge. So speaking of that, some of the topics raised today that I just wanted to, to bring out and highlight is, one, that creativity of starting a new business is doing something that very few other people do, the bravery of it and the steep learning curve that, that she's had and, and continues to have. You know, many of us start farms that are trying to emulate the farms that we see around us, which are typically their more common livestock animals like cattle or sheep. Um, and, and market them in more typical ways, you know, like freezer beef or even at auction. And I just want to give Nicole and her family like props for what they're doing, largely Nicole, really digging deep into a niche on both species and market levels, finding a super specialized niche and getting really good at that can be an excellent way to do really well, um, in any kind of a business, but it also means that there's no one ahead to follow in the footsteps of. So it's breaking ground, or since we're in the winter in Vermont right now, I'll say breaking a path through the snow. <laughs> it's definitely, it's not for everyone. And I just want to really give them a, a, a high five on um, being willing to just break ground on a completely creative thing. So the second thing I wanted to touch to touch on is, you know, the system of supporting farms in a natural disaster or a crisis is really challenging. And it's, you heard Nicole's story talking about trying to get paid, trying to paperwork, um, missing, prioritizing animal lives over, over, you know, trying to get some good video for a future GoFundMe. I mean, these aren't necessarily the things that we're thinking about when we're in the middle of a crisis. And, um, so this system isn't very functional in a lot of cases of trying to support farms in a natural disaster or, or a crisis, post-crisis. And 
her Nicole's experience with the flooding this summer and and actually just this week I another farm family that I spoke with they had a similar sort of thing these are stories of folks that were exhausted and grieving from the trauma of losing many animals um, or or experiencing widespread land damage and what to whether to replant or whether to move or anything. And then they had to spend hours and hours documenting, doing paperwork, trying to find some assistance to help with recovery, um, and finding themselves very frustrated and not getting and not getting that support, uh, financial support, like it just sort of not showing up yet. Um, I spoke with John Roberts, the head of Vermont's Farm Service Agency, a few episodes ago, if you got that at the beginning of the year. And, and he acknowledged his own frustration with the lack of speed and the bureaucracy. Um, I don't mention John to call him out, uh, but to note that in lots of places on the whole chain of action, you know, from the field all the way up to the head of FSA in Vermont, there's just this recognition that we need things to change. And this isn't a Vermont thing. This is just this is just a Vermont example on a system level change is hard, which really doesn't help folks like Nicole and the other farmers flooded this summer who are still waiting for responses, sometimes responses at all. And sometimes actual checks that are, have been promised. The other piece of this is recognizing that there is a loss difference between a farm that raises a smaller number of animals for specific qualities and a farm that raises animals for numbers. And I'm not going to pit large and small farms against each other, but I think that um, you could certainly argue that a farm that is doing many thousands of Cornish crossbirds and, you know, the value of those birds or the sales value of those birds, birds may be a couple of dollars versus, you know, Nicole and family's birds, which may be, you know, 10 or $20, depending upon the, the type of breed that they've got. So that's not necessarily a size thing, but it definitely is the qualities and the systems in which those, those, and a chicken is not a chicken. And the way that uh, folks get reimbursed it right now is presuming that a chicken is a chicken. Um, and there are some crop insurance programs that try to address that in the loss value, not necessarily the animal numbers. But again, it's another complicated system to navigate and to understand, and it requires payment ahead um, regardless of whether you have losses. And so there's always that to balance, whether it makes sense to pay it ahead um, or to take your chances. Whew. So the third thing was um, the concept of too many things. <laughs> I brought this up myself and, uh, and, and actually uh, I think we edited it out a little bit, but, but Nicole and I, you know, we chatted a little bit more about, about giving some things up um, and the experiences of doing that and the challenges of doing that um, after, after we ended our formal interview. And, um, and Nicole brought up the point of it being hard to let things go. And I will not disagree with that. <laughs> in any way. Um, but uh, a couple of years ago, I was made aware of this really powerful exercise um, uh, as part of uh, the Sedona method, um, which is, and I'll throw a link to the Sedona method if you want to learn more about it, um, which is about releasing things that we're attached to. And so here's the exercise. Just grab a pen and um, hold it in your hand. Uh, it could be a big pen, little pen, pencil, doesn't matter. Uh, grip it really hard. 
for, I don't know, 30 seconds, something like that, and hold it out in front of you so that it's, it's, you know, kind of parallel to your body, perpendicular to your arm. Just keep squeezing it. And then open your hand. And for a lot of us, simply opening our hand to let something go feels really difficult. But partly that's because we've been gripping it so tightly. We set ourselves up so our muscles are used to holding on to that pen. Or in my case, pigs, you know, whatever. <laughs> uh, but holding on to that pen really tightly and it feels hard to let it go. But really, all we need to do is open our hand and the pen drops. Oop, I've now lost my place in my notes. I love this. <laughs> this is real life stuff, people. Just saying. So over the last few years, I've been steadily letting some things go. And even things that I like to bunch, you know, like events and pigs and, and a few more things I think I'm about ready to let go of now, too. And it feels lighter. Anyway, so try that exercise. See what you think. Um, and I'd love to hear your reactions on that one. So lastly, I wanted to come back around and remind you that if you want to experience greater success in your life, I'm bringing together a community of people practicing that, who want to work on that. Whether you're a farmer or a rancher or a homesteader, a service provider, a student, a researcher, if you are a person who interfaces with agriculture, you might have noticed that our culture struggles with the identity of being successful. Whether that means just making a comfortable amount of money, spending enough time with family or friends, or improving how you feel about yourself every day, you deserve all the success. You just do. Um, however you define it. It doesn't matter how you define success, but you deserve that. I have been learning and practicing principles for success steadily over the last six years. Um, and the difference that it's made in my quality of life has just absolutely been astounding. And that's why I want to share it with everybody. I couldn't have even predicted a few years ago where I would be right now in my peace and my confidence and my happiness. I wasn't a very happy person six years ago. I realize that now. I was stressed. I didn't sleep. I didn't eat for hours. And then I ate everything. I never felt like I could take time for myself. And I was revenge scrolling through social media at midnight just to feel like I was getting some time for myself. If you're feeling these stresses, keep your eye out for emails about the whole human club. We're going to pick a topic every month to work on and support each other through what we are learning and practicing. We're all practicing this stuff together. It'll be built around your needs, members' needs, and where you're at, it's not designed to overwhelm you with too much at a time because you're busy, but to build up the positives and help transform your life. We'll even be including some regenerating images in memory or RIM session discounts. If you don't know what RIM is, I talked about that in my transformational um, bonus. If you want to go back and listen to that one, I will also uh, drop the link to um, some information about RIM in the show notes. The upshot is, do you want things to be the same next year as they are today? No? Then jump on the Choosing to Farm mailing list and you'll get all the details when they are available. We're developing the whole idea about Whole Human Club right now. We know we want to do it and we're just putting the finishing touches on it. Whew! 
So what parts of this conversation resonated with you? Any parts of this conversation? Reach out with your comments or your questions at choosingtofarm.com. You can even, I love this, you can even click on leave a voicemail. There's like a little tab on the webpage, the main webpage of Choosing to Farm, and record a comment while you're driving. But do that safely, please. Please be safe. Check the show notes for links to Nicole's contact information, as well as the topics that we covered today. And as always, if you'd like to support the show, share it with a friend. Please consider supporting our Patreon at any level or leave that public review because they help and they are free. And I am trying to build them up so more people can find us. It is such an honor to be able to share your stories out in the world. Farmer to Farmer is how we learn and how we build relationships. And that is what I hope we're doing together one episode at a time. Thanks, everyone. I'll see you next time. Here's my husband, Chris Sargent, to play us out. Oh, 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 o